Hello and welcome to It's All Relative. I'm your host, historian and writer Dr. Eliza Philby, taking a light-hearted look at the generation gap. Each episode, I shall be interviewing two guests from different generations of the same famous family to discuss their contrasting lives, experiences and values. For this first episode, I am so delighted to introduce an uncle and niece for whom family dynamics is a pivotal theme in their work. As creator and writer of the phenomenon that is Downton Abbey, Julian Fellows has put the class and familial tensions of early 20th century under the spotlight, achieving much acclaim and a sweep of awards in the process. We're also joined by his niece, author and journalist Jessica Fellows, whose work is also rooted in the family and generational dynamics of the early 20th century. She is author of the Mitford Murder series, based on the lives of the Mitford sisters, kind of the Kardashians of the day. Julian, Jessica, welcome to It's All Relative. Thank you. It's great to be here. I love that introduction. Thank you. Thank you for having us. <laughs> My pleasure. Julian, I wonder if we could start with you. You know, class interactions and dynamics are obviously front and centre of your work. How do you think the relationship between class dynamics has changed since your youth, when that legacy was very much there from a sort of hangover almost of the Victorian period, into how it's changed today? Has class become less important? I think we're a little more honest today than we were in my youth. There was a fashion, particularly in the 60s and 70s, for pretending that class had ceased to exist. And if you were a nice person, you didn't notice it. Uh, it you, you, you paid it no reference. Of course, it hadn't ceased to exist at all. And in fact, was still one of the major dynamics of most people's lives. Uh, I, I remember being on a chat show once with a very fine man called Roger Bannister, who had been a runner. And it was my, my first novel had come out. And he said, well, of course, I think all this stuff ceased to exist when I was in my 20s. Now, of course, as he said those words, he knew they were not true. But he got a kind of moral puff by saying them. And I think that was part of the 60s, was you said things that you knew you were not true were not true, but you wanted to wear the badge on your lapel. In that sense, I think we still do that. We have so um, rigid a moral structure at the moment uh, and so prescribed the views that we are and we are not to hold or question. Uh, and uh, in that sense, people still say things they know perfectly well they don't believe, but they want people watching television or whatever it is to think they believe them. Uh, and maybe that is always the case. Maybe in every era, in every period, there are things you have to say to get plus marks. Uh, but certainly it was true when I was young and it's true now. Jessica, you, you talked about Julian, you became almost his surrogate daughter. Did class feature in your youth and, and how did your relationship with your uncle Julian evolve? Uh, oh, well, so what the, the thing with Julian and me was that Julian was a very young uncle when I was born. So my parents were quite young and Julian was 24, I think, when I was born and didn't get married till I was 16. So in all those years, he, he was this sort of alternative, um, you know, not an alternative father, but an alternative grown up on the scene. And Julian and I got on very well. And I think probably part of it was that he did give me this 
partly an alternative view to the one that my parents held and also uh, a, a, a kind of a route to understanding my grandparents on that side. So my parents' position was very much about that 1960s rejection of the idea that class exists and so on. So they were, they were bohemians. My mother was an actress and my, and my father was sort of variously an artist and a picture framer and then a, um, actually then eventually a special effects animator. But it was all about the artistic life. And then when I was about 16 and Julian married Emma, simultaneously, my mother started to become very ill with um, early onset dementia and and it was all a very sort of complicated and very difficult time and Julian and Emma really stepped in and did really look after me and kind of steered me through my 20s. Well I love the way that Julian just casually name dropped one of the most famous athletes there Roger Bannister, who in the 1950s was, of course, the first man to run a mile in under four minutes, whilst also practicing as a junior doctor. Very impressive. But Julian was right about class in the 1960s compared to now. Back then, there was a naive confidence that it was a more egalitarian time, which, of course, it was not. But these days, I think there's a slightly different issue. We tend to focus, somewhat understandably, on gender, sexuality and racial categories. You rarely hear people talking about the working class these days, either in Parliament, the press or down the pub. And yet class is probably more defined than it used to be because social mobility has actually stalled amongst younger generations. And sending more kids to university hasn't made us a more middle-class society, far from it. Across the developed world, the middle class has actually shrunk by 10% since the 1970s. So maybe we need to start talking about class again. Julian, you describe your childhood as a very happy one growing up in the 1950s. And you were part of the season, I believe, in 1968. I wouldn't sort of associate you, if you don't mind me saying, as a child of the 60s. But it seems, again, your youth really collided in two different worlds. You know, the old world of the seasons, the debutantes and all of that. And then the kind of new world of sex, drugs and rock and roll, the 1960s. <laughs> yes, I don't know that sex, drugs and rock and roll were exactly my forte. Um, <laughs> Very good dancer, though, Julian. I, I was in the other 60s. Now our 60s are the 60s given to us by Channel 4, which is all Marianne Faithful and Mick Jagger and Mars Bars. But that wasn't the whole story. Uh, and the old world was still lingering on. You know, the 60s was only just after the 50s, when no woman left the house without a hat and gloves. I mean, it, was, it wasn't quite the image that we are given now. Uh, and I think also, I mean, Jessica's father and I are very, very far apart philosophically uh, and perhaps to a slightly less extent politically, but nevertheless, we are fairly distant politically. And so she was, in a sense, caught between those two. But I enjoyed, I mean, I didn't get on with my brother. I didn't like him, really. I liked his wife, but I didn't like him. But uh, I enjoyed being different. So anything that he was not doing was recommended to me. And, uh, and being a Deb's delight was more or less the kind of polar opposite of what he was doing. And so that appealed to me enormously. And indeed, 
I enjoyed it. I know now we're all supposed to say how ghastly it was, but I didn't think it was ghastly at all. I was going off to these parties every weekend and I was going out to drinks parties and this and that and the other. And um, I loved it. Julian, you mentioned that you had a sort of right wing existence. Do you think you've become more conservative or less conservative as you've got older? Because I tend to assume that people become more conservative with age. Did you have an avant-garde decade or? No, I mean, I think you have to define yourself, really. I mean, I think for me, being a political conservative uh, is more or less a question of economics. Uh, I think it's possible, perfectly possible, in fact, to be uh, a political conservative without being in the least socially conservative. So the fact that the two were always rolled together by television journalists is, in fact, a completely false reading of human nature. Uh, I would say that I don't believe in socialist economics. I don't think there is historically any reason to believe in them. They have never worked. And uh, every country that has been, uh, that has tried to run its economy on socialist lines has in the end come to smash up. And that seems to me to be a reasonably good reason for not believing in it. But uh, I would say that in terms of social custom, I don't know. Uh, no, I think it is true. I think I am less conservative because I'm more questioning. I think when I was younger, I accepted the rules without really asking myself terribly hard questions about why they existed. Now I have a more questioning view of all of the rules. And uh, some of them, I think, are probably in place for a more peaceable society uh, and on that level should be supported. But I think there are very few that can't be broken when the situation is right. And uh, I am reluctant to condemn people for breaking the rules when I don't know the full story, which is almost always. Uh, you, you very, very seldom know the whole story. And so I would say that I've altered in that sense. Uh, and that's why uh, I find this tremendously prescriptive society we're living through at the moment rather naive that these absolutes are dealt in. Every generation believes different things. Some of the things some generations believe seem wrong to us. Some of them are just bewildering. Mm. And Jessica, how is your sort of politics and values changed and evolved as you've aged? Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, no, so I, I like the way Julian put that. So I would say that's probably right for me. I am politically, uh, sort of economically a conservative, um, but socially a liberal, you know, which is to say, again, that's probably the combination of Julian and my and my and Emma and my parents, you know, to get together in some ways. But also I think I'm a product of the modern world. I absolutely loved Julian's answer here about becoming less judgmental later in life and why context is everything. Julian's right that every generation needs to challenge the status quo, but he's obviously questioning of our desire to morally condemn the past. But I think part of the success of things like Downton Abbey is the way that it makes the era of our great-grandparents appear both distant but completely relatable.
It's All Relative is sponsored by Acorn Aperitifs, the delicious non-alcoholic spritz range made from botanical herbs and natural flavours. Now, I can personally vouch for just how delicious acorn drinks are. Last April, during the first lockdown, I was hot, tired and bloated because I was six months pregnant and at the time, a little peeved with my husband who decided to introduce an evening cocktail ritual. While he embraced his inner Don Draper with his shaken martinis, I sipped somewhat resentfully on my low-grade cordial. Then I discovered bitter acorn. So I like to mix mine with tonic water and a squeeze of lemon. And this became my third trimester evening ritual, which saw me through the first lockdown, the birth of my daughter and well afterwards because even though now I can technically enjoy alcohol, acorn bitter is my go-to aperitif. So whether you're cutting down or cutting out in lockdown or set free, try acorn, your 100% natural non-alcoholic aperitif. Next, I wanted to confront accusations of ageism head on and asked Julian about a comment he had made a couple of years ago in which he had labelled today's 20-somethings as the great excuse generation. Do you still believe that, given the context of what they've gone through in the last 18 months? Um, Well, I think what they've gone through in the last 18 months is extremely difficult, particularly the school and university generation, who have really essentially missed out on the experience. And I don't know what compensatory measures can be taken now, but I doubt very much they will fully compensate for what they've missed. So in that sense, uh, I don't feel that about them. I can't remember saying it, actually, but I've seen it quoted, so I'm sure I did. What I feel very strongly about this generation is they allow all their views to be dictated. And I wish they would come up with some original views. They, They don't whether it's climate change or diversity or or save the planet, whatever it is. Now, I'm not saying these things are bad or not interesting or not important. I think they're all very important. But what I would love to hear is some original views. What you hear is the paid up, dictated views of their seniors who are trying to get their support for this kind of movement or that kind of movement. And I think that, to defend my brother for a moment, the 60s generation were very keen on not repeating the standard views of their parents. They they wanted to have their own views about things. And while at times that was tiresome and at other times it was just plain wrong, nevertheless, the impulse was a good one. The energy behind it was good. And I would like to see more of that. Jessica, do you feel that young people are rehashing older people's ideas or I mean I've got I've got two stepchildren of 29 and 22 as well as my boy of 10 you know so I've got quite a good overview um uh, and then my sister is nine years younger than than me you know so and and then all of them are all, all very different no I mean I think I think the great sort of difficulty um, the sort of modern malaise, if you like, is comparisonitis, you know, and it's just this thing that you know everybody is constantly on, on, on the social media, and so they're all comparing themselves to these people who are all slightly like them, but maybe not quite, you know, and and sort of whether it's from a looks point of view or a sort of um, gesture politics point of view or whatever, you know, there is this feeling of just wave after wave of the same thing, and I d- I do find it very difficult. I've had my first sort of generational disconnect 
um, with younger women, I think, in terms of just how they view feminism and how I view feminism. Um, and I do find this kind of blanket shutdown of anything that doesn't agree with, with them very difficult to handle apart from anything else. It just doesn't engage debate. What would you say is the main difference between your feminism and, and younger generations? I suppose, you know, with my generation, you sort of, rightly or wrongly, but you, you just accepted that certain things would be difficult, um, you know, whether, you know, with other men or, you know, whatever, whether socially or at work or whatever. And, but you just, you didn't complain about that. You just, you, you might moan a little bit about privately or whatever, but you just got on and dealt with it. I think, I've, I find this sort of constant um, thing of, you know, men are doing this to me at work and it's making me feel miserable. And, you know, I, I just don't find it helpful. I just, you know, there's this sort of pervasive air of wrongs being done to them rather than just, you know, pushing it to one side and getting on. But, you know, on the other hand, it has made me revise a lot of incidents in the past. And you think, well, actually, you know, that was very aggressive. But, it's, you know, it's kind of very strong language is used to cover what I think are quite minor incidents or incidents that I was told to cover up. But also, you know, I know how that view has changed. I can remember my grandmother um, when I was about 16 and she was in her early 80s describing to me a very serious, you know, sexual assault that she had had, um, which, uh, you know, at the beginning of her youth, and, and it was still very upsetting to her in her 80s. So it wasn't as if everybody was just sort of lying around getting raped and saying, oh, this is fine. But they, there was no infrastructure at that point to support them. Yeah, but I it. think the point is that this generation is because they only talk to people who agree with them. They see disagreement as far more alarming, upsetting, and destabilizing than it really is. I mean, the fact is, there are plenty of people who disagree with you. And they are not all unreasonable or horrible or extremist or all the rest of it. They just look at the points of view, they look at the facts, and they come to a di different conclusion. We grew up in argument, we grew up in debate. And that went on until comparatively recently. It is the social media that has provided you with an audience, quite a numerous audience, who all agree with you. And that creates the sense that anyone who disagrees is being unbelievably unreasonable and needs to be silenced. And that I find quite sinister. I find the inability to listen to people who disagree with you reasonably is a real step back for society. And we have to regain the ability to be disagreed with. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, it's a fascinating argument. I mean, one would have made perhaps the same argument in the 1960s when people talked about the pervasive influence of television on youth and how that had created a youth movement that was completely rejecting of the status quo and hierarchies and the culture of deference. Yes, but I think they did. I think they had that you had those arguments going on. You had those arguments going on in the 1920s. You had those arguments going on in the 1860s. You know, I'm sure, you know, it's always happened, but I think the difference, you know, was that there wasn't this kind of fear of saying something um, and then getting completely shut down. You know, it's just, there's, there's sort of no, there's no room for anyone even to say, oh gosh, perhaps I shouldn't have said that, you know, or I misunderstood that, or I, you know, there's just sort of no air for them to breathe, you know, when, when a mistake is made. So when you say it when you're 15 and you're now 39 and pursuing a career in business, and the idea that you said it at 15 is enough to shut you down. Mm. 
Mm. I mean, that, that, that is based on the premise that there is no such thing as progress in life, which if we really believed, we'd all be hanging on the back of the bathroom door. The kind of echo chambers and moral puritanism that Julian talks about have always existed. It's just that these cultures were previously confined to the pew or to the pub, and now they are out in the public domain for us all to see and read. That smartphone in your pocket is now your megaphone. Julian was quite scathing, I think, of young people's naivety, especially in respect to social media. But this generation of digital natives aren't sheep at all. They are sceptical of everything from politics to advertising and are pushing the boundaries in ways that are very challenging to their parents, yes, but in many respects, very necessary. Quick fire round, I call this. Your first that have shaped your identity and your youth. So your first kiss. Who was your first kiss with, Julian? My, now this dates me. My first kiss was a girl called Virginia Sturge, whose <laughs> sister, I remember, was in the Olympic skiing team, although she wasn't. And we were at a party uh, at a, a given by a girl called Amanda Lambda. And it was in, on the edge of Lewis, Mauling Deanery, and it was a tennis party. And in those days, tennis parties were not when everyone was incredibly good at tennis, but you sort of lobbed a tennis ball over the net a couple of times and then ate cream tea and tried to kiss someone. That was basically the rule. Uh, and that was the first time I kissed someone. Uh, and I did, in fact, take her out after that. Well, mine's much less glamorous. I was 14 and it was a boy called Andrew and uh, it was at a party in, in a pub in Deptford. <laughs> I think I'll take mine over that. <laughs> and what about first car? My first car was my mother's discarded Mini, a green Mini. And I was at Cambridge. I think I was, I'd gone up at 18, but I think I was 19 when I was given her car. And of course, in those days, it was much easier to have a car in Cambridge because you could park practically anywhere. There were almost no restrictions on parking. And it made the going up and down to London and everything miles easier. Uh, and which, of course, we did all the time for parties and that sort of thing. Uh, often having drunk too much, I blush to say. Jessica, what about, what about you? First car? Well, my first proper car that was really mine to own was given to me by Emma, Julian's wife, which was her first car, which was a Renault 5, which I loved, actually, and I and I drove it till, till it died, I think, about five years ago. That was after university, so I was in my mid-20s. Fantastic. And final one, what was your first music purchase? And in what format? Because I'm afraid that format will also date you. <laughs> my first music purchase was a 45. That, that lost breed of record. <laughs> uh, and it was a song called An English Country Garden. Julian, you're living up to stereotype. You really are. <laughs> uh, and I loved it. I played it endlessly. Uh, but on the other hand, despite going into a very, very musical era, I mean, going up to university, you know, in 1967 and that kind of thing, when it really was music and, and dope, I wasn't terribly interested in either. And I've never really been tremendously driven by music. I mean, I like music, you know, I like Barbara Streisand. 
I think of you as listening to all the 50s rock and roll songs. You made a brilliant mixtape for Mum years Oh, ago. yes, I did like the 50s. I did like those songs. I made, well, your mother and I shared that taste. Yeah. And we made two compilations. We, we used to do this brilliant dance together, which was dance through the ages. So it was every kind of dance that sort of began with a sort of polka from the Middle Ages <laughs> and finished off with the twist. That was great. Um, but my first song was, I, th I think, well, I, I remember being given LPs and things. Um, uh, musical Youth was sort of one of the, past the duchy on the left-hand side. That was one of my first one. But um, I, think the, I think the first one I bought was the one of the early now music mixtapes, radio cassette, you know, cassettes. Um, and I, cause I remember it had Prince's Raspberry Beret on it. I think it was now three or something. That was the, yeah. That was the classic. But otherwise, it was hours of trying to tape off radio, Radio 1. You'd try to press record, you know, and you'd get really annoyed if the DJ talked over the end of the song or whatever. I remember oh, those days. Oh. It was precision, <laughs> absolute precision. And finally, you are both products of the 20th century, very much so. If you had one piece of advice for future generations as they try and navigate the 21st century, what would it be? Learn to think for yourself and learn to defend your views without getting angry. Brilliant. <laughs> yeah. uh, and mine's not that different, I don't think, but it's, yes, know your values. Just out of interest, what would the Dowager Countess of Grantham have said if I'd have asked that question to <laughs> her in the, uh, the mid 20th century? I think she would have said, are you really planning to wear that for dinner? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> On that note, thank you very much, Jessica and Julian, for your time and your honesty and, and your conversation. It's been truly fascinating. Thank you very much. I think it's really nice. To actually, you know, it occurred to me that Julian and I haven't actually managed to spend this long in conversation together. <laughs> no, for quite a while, really. <laughs> Listeners, I really wish you could have actually seen Julian as he had the most ornate Zoom backdrop ever. It was all gold leaf and tasseled cushions. But what great guests both of them were. So honest, so insightful and fascinating. Please subscribe to the podcast. And if you would like to follow me on socials, you can find me on LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram at Eliza Philby. And if you're super keen and want to hear more insights from me about generational research, you can subscribe to my newsletter at www.elizaphilby.com. When you sign up, you will also be entered into a prize draw with the chance to win some impressive Acorn goodies. Thanks for listening. I look forward to you all tuning in for the next episode of It's All Relative.